Welcome to A Longer Table Podcast, a space where curiosity and proximity will challenge everything you thought you knew. I'm your host, Amanda Carpenter, inviting you to pull up a seat. You just might leave thinking, maybe we're not so different. This episode is brought to you by Able, my absolute favorite place to shop. And y'all know I'm not a big shopper, but here's why I'm obsessed with Able. They create the cutest tops, dresses, pants, shoes, jewelry, you get the point, everything for your wardrobe that empowers both the person wearing them and the women who make them. Able started by working with a few women in Ethiopia to provide sustainable jobs as a solution to poverty to provide a better future for themselves and their families. Able continues to move fashion forward by providing dignified jobs for women because supporting women has the power to change not only their families, but entire communities. Able is women-run, and they intentionally partner with vendors who share the same mission and vision. So I was stoked when they agreed to sponsor a Longer Table podcast. If that doesn't tell you how cool they are, I don't know what will. You can use the code ALONGERTABLE15 for 15% off everything on their website at ableclothing.com. Steve Carter is a pastor, speaker, author, podcast host, and sports enthusiast. You may recognize his name since he's the former lead teaching pastor of Willow Creek Community Church in Chicago. Steve shares in this conversation today what happened from his perspective when all of the drama at Willow Creek went down, why he's still a pastor today, and ultimately teaches all of us how we can transition out of something, a job, a friendship, anything really, well. You don't want to miss this one. Steve, I'm so excited we're having this conversation. Thanks for being here. Oh my goodness. I this is feels like a uh a long time coming because we feel like we know all the same people, but have never actually been in the same room. So I'm like so, totally. so fired up. My wife's a huge fan of you. Aww. We love your work. And so this is a, a truly an honor. Thanks. Yeah. No, the feeling's mutual. I'm like a fan of you guys and There's so much I want to talk about. I would love to actually start our conversation with you just kind of filling in the blank. So you can take this wherever you want. To know you is to know what? That's a great question. To know you is to know what? I would say um, I'm a Michigan fan. um, Mm. So I love sports. um, And... I was a huge Michigan fan because it was a way for me to connect with my dad. Um, Mm. And I didn't always know how to. And then my dad um, got really, really sick. And he went to the University of Michigan because he needed a bone marrow transplant. And Mm. it actually extended a decade um, of years to his life. And um, we were able to reconcile. And and he passed a couple of years ago, but um, was one of my closest friends. And so... um, for me, it's like Michigan reminds me of dad and connection mm-hmm. and, and reconciliation. Um, I'm a, I'm an optimist. I'm a three on the Enneagram. I'm married to my wife, Sarah. I've, I have two kids. Um, and I, I think I'm just, uh, someone who has found himself in a desert season and I thought I was out of it, but I realized, um, I'm still in it. I'm still mm-hmm. in it. I'm still in it. Wow. Oh, that's a great answer. I mean, there's so much we could unpack there. I will say my husband and my in-laws, the whole family, the whole Carpenter family are huge Michigan fans. So love that. You know, you, yep. You scored one with the team. Um, yeah, man, I'm so sorry about the loss of your dad, but I love that. I love that connection to Michigan. And I'm sure when you go to games, even today, it's like really special, just the, the memory of him. And, oh, I love that. Um, interesting what you shared about the desert season you guys recently moved from the desert back to the midwest is that right yep so in 2018 we like i stepped out of my dream job and um we there's a whole bunch of kind of like issues around that we can we can get into that at some point but like the we just lived like a couple miles away and felt like, man, this is just too hard walking into Starbucks. And there's just so many like um, competing, I think, emotions and forces. And I I realized um, I just had this sense that as a three, I, I thought I could achieve my way out of this. Mm-hmm. And I felt like the the spirit was just whispering, uh, you can only grieve your way through it. And I didn't know how to grieve. And so 
um, I felt like I was told to go to the desert and wait for instructions instead of like try to go to San Francisco or Miami or somewhere that I thought was better than Chicago, you know, um, and and achieve my way out. And so my wife's originally from uh, the greater Phoenix area. And so when I told her, she just teared up and was like, I want to go home. Mm-hmm. And so we spent three and a half years there. And honestly, I didn't, I never thought we'd move back to the Midwest, but we've been trying to teach our kids agency. And really, as my son was entering into high school, I said, Hey, wherever we start, I'm going to do whatever I can to help you finish there. I don't want to be moving you like you know, I moved you um, out of fifth grade when we left Illinois. So I was like, where would you want to go? And without missing a beat, he said, I want to go to our old neighborhood. Mm-hmm. I want to go home. And mm-hmm. and my wife and I were like, we did not see that coming. Um, and so we just really started to like kind of talk that through. Um, I don't know very many people who move back to their personal Chernobyl, but um, all of a sudden you, you, you see your son say, this is what I desire. Mm-hmm. And we're like, Okay. And so I think it also opened up how much I love the Midwest and how much I love just the the people in the Midwest and I love greater Chicagoland. And, um, and so we came back and we moved into the same neighborhood 20 doors down. And mm-hmm. so it has been a, a wild end desert and return. Um, it's, I'm not going to say it's like Good Friday, Holy Saturday and Easter. It just, it feels though we're, <laughs> we're in Holy Saturday still, but we're, we're, we're figuring it out. And uh, my son is beyond happy. So yeah, we're back. That's awesome. Okay. So we have to back up now and go to 2018. You leave your dream job. So to my knowledge, and correct me if this is wrong, you were the teaching pastor, one of the teaching pastors at Willow Creek Community Church in Chicago. 2018, there was some pretty massive leadership fallout that happened. Um, You can share as much or as little as you're comfortable with. But what I really want to know is what you learned from that experience. Like, how did that impact you? And what what have you taken away from it? Yep. So, you know, I was in Southern California in 2012. I was a a pastor and um, I had known um, Bill Heibel's son, in-law and daughter. And um, when we were in Michigan together, we were in a small group and um, and we were friends. Um, and all of a sudden, a, um, a job became open at Willow. And um, I uh, somehow my name came up and Bill had been kind of this mentor from afar. Like I'd, I'd, I'd sh- go back to Michigan and um, because of uh, my friendships, um, with Aaron and Shauna at the time, like they, they would say, Hey, come over. And I would talk with Bill. And so Bill invited me out. And my first week on the job was like September of 2012. And he says, Hey, um, I'm in the succession process. And, um, I asked a few staff members if they wanted to consider themselves to, to go into the running and, um, four people raised their hands. They wanted my job and, um, I have to submit a list to the elders and, and I know you've always wanted to be a lead pastor. So I added your name to the list too. And I was like, what? Number one, you're leaving. And then number two, I like, I just got here. Like I, I don't want to be added to this list. And he just said, pray about it. I came back the next week and said, no. And then uh, he said, Wait, I'm not saying what year was this really quickly? The, 2012. 2012. Okay. So six years before you actually end up leaving. Okay. Okay. Yeah. yeah, I'm yeah, following. yeah. So, so the, tr- this, he goes, do you want to put your name to list? And I was like, uh, no, he goes, I'm not saying you're gonna get the job. I'm just saying you're going to be developed and you came here to be developed. And I was like, okay, I'll put my name to the list. And then it kind of like became a little bit like the Christian hunger games. Like there was the five of us who were going for this job. I say all that is because for five years, it was a pressure cooker. And mm-hmm. every time I taught every meeting I was in, like it, it was, that was good for succession, succession. That was bad for succession. 2017, uh, myself and another person kind of get knighted as I'll be the lead teaching pastor. Um, this other person will be the lead executive pastor. The two of us will lead and, and basically take Bill's job. And then in 2018, allegations come of misconduct through the Chicago Tribune. And these are stories that I don't even know. And there's like, it's like a mentor. Like I, I'm like, wait, what? A guy who's in many ways, like his record was like, 
like squeaky clean. He had developed all these people. And, and then all of a sudden you start to see these lists of names of people who are coming forward and you recognize, oh, there was five years of people not actually dealing with what happened and taking the allegations seriously and, and, and minimizing women and, and just their experience and story. And, and it led to this kind of prophetic uprising in the Chicago Tribune and other articles. And, and really, you know, we, we began to see this whole church two kind of movement. So all that to say is this just hit. And I, I, I don't know what to think. Um, I mean, this is, this is my mentor. He doesn't, he doesn't hug people. Like this is my mentor that like has like given me a platform and a job. And I love this congregation. I'm doing stuff with like the Chicago bears. Like I, I have a, I see the next 25 years of my life and yet there's 90% good in my experience. And now I'm seeing the cracks and you're like, what do you do? What do you do? And I, and Stephen Colbert has this great line because he, he went through a similar thing with his mentor at CBS and Colbert says, if accountability is not for everyone, then it's pointless. Mm -hmm. And oftentimes in situations of power, it's easy to say, well, I don't know that context, but that person needs accountability. But then when it's really close to home and it's your mentor, your father, your mother, your your friend, there's a lot that you get to lose and, and a lot you have to manage and a lot that you get protective or preservation oriented around. And I felt all of that, especially as a three on the Enneagram, I felt all of that. And and here's like kind of a, the, the piece is 2018 hits and I just realized I, I break down in front of my counselor and I just said, there's no ultimate win. Hmm. I... I think I do the right thing and I hurt my mentor. I think I do the right thing. I hurt a congregation. I, I try and do the right thing. I might not do it right. And I might hurt the women. Like there, you, you, you can't, when there's this level of dysfunction and hiding and secrets, you, you end up getting caught holding the bag when other people are responsible to hold that and do the right harder, right. And when they don't, and then you left are left carrying it, you can't make everybody happy. Yeah. And it just, it like, it was so hard and so overwhelming. And then I realized the only ultimate win that I had was my character was integrity was that there's going to be some eighth grader at Willow who I will look at me and go, at the end of the day, when all of the truth comes out, and someday it's all going to come out, but when all of that truth comes out, even though they might not fully understand it in the moment of when I left, they'll be able to go back and go, now I understand why he did what he did. And I just couldn't play with people's trust. And deep down, I think that's the, that's the piece of and I love this question is how do you end well, but how do you end well in a, in a season of dysfunction when the people who should actually handle that dysfunction well, choose to ghost and choose to, you know, self-preserve. And for your listeners, like that Willow was like a third of a billion dollars in assets. So there's a lot of like self-preservation or institutional preservation, even preservation over the, the, the founding pastor. But I'm like, I get all of that, but here were women who were sharing about abuse and their experience. You got to choose the harder right. So so for you, man, yeah, this is I mean, it had to be so disorienting when these allegations came forward and you're the person that you experienced for those years that you were on his staff team, you were planning to kind of fill his shoes when he uh retired is no you're finding out like in that moment you aren't who I thought you were. You aren't who you said you were. Or, and I want to bring nuance to it because not to make this about me, but as it relates, people could learn my story when they read Soul Care to Save Your Life and think, oh my gosh, I thought I knew her. And now I'm realizing like she had this affair, like she's not who I thought she was. 
So what I want to say is a couple just clarifying points, which is none of us are the sum of our worst mistakes. None of us are all bad, right? Um, and and in the same, none of us are all good. So just because someone, there's nothing bad that you've heard or no major character breach doesn't mean that they're perfect. That being said, this was, we're not talking about just some minor thing. This was a lot of abuse allegations, pretty severe, pretty heavy, significant stuff. And that's that alone is bad, but you just, man, it's it's it hits deeper, it cuts deeper when it's within a church, which is supposed to be the safe place. The pastor who's preaching on all of these things and then behind closed doors is acting completely different. That has to be so disorienting, not only for the congregation, but for people like you who sat really closely beneath this person or next to this person and thought you were learning from them. And, and in some ways, you still did learn from him. Can't discredit all of that. Um, but I guess my question still is, what made you, when when it was, when he sort of ghosted the situation, what made you positive that leaving was the right choice instead of somehow staying and trying to clean it up, so to speak? Yeah, that's a great question. And I and I think I think the the piece that and this is tricky because not everybody under, understands this. So um the allegations and the story breaks in March of 2018. Bill resigns, retires early, is forced, depending on who you talk to, um, that first end of April, first week of May, more stories start to come. I drop a blog late June, early July that's that says, I believe the women. And and it was during that time that I, like from probably April to that time that I wrote the blog that I went rogue because I was in the season of cognitive dissonance. Because the gravitational pull of institutional power, you're all you're doing is you're you're like listening to the sound bites there, and you're like it's hard for you to get out of the echo chamber, and mm-hmm. and actually look at something objectively. So I was feeling all of this like this is not the bill that I experienced. This is not what I know. Like, I, I, sure he's demanding, and there's 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 issues of like you got to do it this way, and there there's definite issues of power abuse, but I. I didn't feel that from him. I didn't mm. experience that per se. But I'm reading these accounts and then I'm meeting with these women and I am I am like gutted because these aren't the stories that I am hearing f- from inside the echo chamber. Mm. So so now the cognitive dissonance is in full on different time zones. Oh, this is what those people are trying to do. Oh no, this is what I experienced. So I have this um this moment where I literally I turned our we turned our basement in. If you ever seen the show Scandal, and like I had taken all of the women and I was just like by their name and I was like, okay, what was really their story? What was I told? What did they experience? And I was just trying to figure it out. The problem though is for many of us, we when we find ourselves in this situation, the betrayal trauma is so real that you don't know who you can trust. Totally. And so I'm like, I don't know if this person's good. I don't know if this person is good. I don't know if this elder is good. I don't know if this staff person is good. And so you end up carrying it yourself. And I found myself getting to a point where after I had written this blog, I had a like a Jerry Maguire moment. So this is July of 2018. And I write a man manifesto and it's about three pages long and it has six specific practices and postures because mm-hmm. we, from the stage, we, and I was, I was on that stage, we showcased not humility, but, but pride and power. And even though sometimes it wasn't everything that I said, I was on that stage mm-hmm. and there were things, and again, to your you know, your point of um, like, there's, there's stuff in me that I have such deep regret. I I was on one of those family meetings early on in March of 18. And I, 
I was trying to bring Bill's energy down. And you know this from being on stage. Sometimes you do that through humor. But my humor minimized the account of a woman. Mm. I, that's terrible. And I had to go to those women and say, I was sorry. Like, and, and again, in that moment, I was trying to lessen the damage, but still creating more. I say all that to say is like, I'm, I'm not saying I did this perfect, but what I realized was our postures, man, it was not transparent. It was powering up. It was prideful. Um, and I said, we got to flip the script and we got to have humility and transparency um, repentance. And then here's how we're going to demonstrate that. So I write out this, this document, I actually show the women and the women were like, if they did this, we'll come to the table. Wow. I bring this to the elders. And this is before I leave. And I, I said, and, and I, again, I don't know who I can trust. Right. I didn't do this perfectly, but I negotiated either or. And basically it was like, if you do all of this, I'll stay. If you don't, I can't. I can't with integrity because then I'm complicit and I'm re I'm becoming the face of a church that's not the church I know her to be. Um mm. and so that created a lot of inner strife um within the board and within some key staffing to the point where I just realized. I think that they don't trust me because they know I've contacted the women and I have heard their story. So I put myself out there. So all that to say is on August 5th, the Sunday morning, I woke up to a bunch of texts telling me about a New York Times article that had just dropped with a link. And it was a story of a woman who was Bill's assistant, Pat Baranowski, and she bravely tells her story. And the details are just horrific of what she experienced, just pictures of notes from Bill. I mean, it's just like a, it's just a, a it's heartbreaking story. And this woman's courage to go forward. And I realized like this, we have to like call him to restoration. We have to call out this sin. And nobody wanted to do it. And I just got so sick in this like pre-service meeting. Um, Ira Glass is is there the, that weekend from This American Life. Annie F. Downs is teaching on being brave. And like, I'm just feeling like if I go out there, I'm just playing church. I'm not being a shepherd and a pastor. I'm not like standing with the marginalized and these women who have been brave. And I get so sick. I go into this back office and I, I just puke. And I, I had a youth pastor growing up, Hal, and Hal never cared how many points I scored. All he cared about was my integrity. And he goes, dude, your, your whole life, it's made up of seconds and minutes and, and hours and days and weeks and months and seasons and years and decades. And, and again, like in a matter of moments and choices, like your integrity can be gone. You know, and so I, I, I don't care about what you produce. I, I care about your character and are you doing the hard work when you mess up to own it and do the harder right? And, and you do this beautifully in your book. You talk about that, like even your story of how you walked that through it, like it was so beautiful and moving to me and your relationship with Eric. And um, I just, just have so much respect. It's not about being perfect. It's about like capturing that moment and doing the harder right. Yeah. And ever since my son was, you know, young, when I put him to bed, I'd tell him what Hal taught me. And I'd say, Emerson, did you have integrity today? And I remember when he was two, he'd be like, I, I think so. And he's like, what about <laughs> you, dad? And I'm like, I, I I think so. And that's kind of how we'd end our night. And and I remember the first time I, I, I shared with the elders that I believed the women. And I came home late at night and I, I just uh, was making myself a drink because I think I was like cortisol to the max. And I heard this pitter patter on the hardwood floor and it was my son. And he, he just came up to me, he looked at me, pointed at me, he goes, did you have integrity today? And it was the first time, the first time he'd ever asked me first. And I was like, I think I did. And he goes, I bet you did. And he ran straight to bed. And as I, as I was sick in that back office and I was washing my face, I thought about 
if he asks me today, did you have integrity today? And I go on that stage and pretend like nothing happened. I'm either going to have to lie to him or tell him the truth or pray to God. He doesn't ask me. Mm-hmm. And I just was like, I can't, I can't do that. I can't live anymore on that cognitive dissonance. And so I just walked out and was like, I got to go home. And I went home and um, a few hours later, wrote a, a resignation and people were really frustrated with the way I resigned. And I understand that. But I think what people don't understand is nobody was going to allow me a chance to talk to seven different campuses at the same exact time with my words. It's just too yeah. big of an organization. And so I went the way the women went, and that was through blogs. And I decided that everybody would get to hear it at the same time. What's unfortunate is, and I've had to apologize to some people, um, you know, parents didn't find out first. Sometimes some of their kids found out on Twitter. Um, mm. uh, and then they had to try and explain it. Why would Steve, why would Pastor Steve quit? Why would he resign? Um, I put a lot of people in a difficult spot, but I have to remind them. I my my response was based on a bunch of people's inaction. Yeah. And it was forcing my hand to either move to a place of a lack of integrity or a place of integrity. And I had to choose to do that. Um what I thought was the next best right step. And not everyone agrees within the Willow system. Most mm-hmm. people outside agreed with my my decision. Um, but that's been that's been hard. Yeah. That's a long answer. I'm so sorry. I feel like I like just gave a no. sermon. But that's trying to give context with like all the nuance and unique pieces. But that's yeah. that's some of the backstory behind it. No, it's it's so good. And I mean, yeah, integrity. You you read my book, you know this. People hear me harp on it all the time. I really believe there is nothing more important than integrity. Nothing matters more than the condition of our soul. And th- I mean, it's it's evident because if that were the case for Bill, for example, then it wouldn't matter how many people you're bringing in, the dollars, the even though there was significantly positive impact from the church, I mean, we can't discredit sure. it. The Willow has done amazing things on so many levels that still none of that matters when people were abused, people were silenced. Um, yeah, it's just, it's devastating. And so I, yeah, I, I can't emphasize it enough. Nothing matters more than the condition of your soul. Integrity is about the only thing that matters. Um, like (laughs) I think we get so caught up in numbers and book sales and platform and all these things. And it's just like, oh, it's so frustrating. Um, but it's hard. And, you know, I feel for people, even even Bill, this is where some people may hate me for saying this, but like I have this unique ability or I don't know, my top spiritual gift is mercy. So maybe that's where this comes from. But Or maybe it's just because I'm a sinner in need of grace big time. And so I can just relate. But I just, I feel, I, primarily I feel for the women, of course. But the part of me that that feels for Bill is I know what it's like to be so um caught in your sin and you don't see a way out and you're so embarrassed and you're in a spiral of shame because secrecy just makes the shame grow right that's breeding grounds for shame and so i i feel for him in that and i hope that at some point he gets help and is able to uh find a way out of that and and i hope and pray for everyone involved but it sounds like i love the language you used about the hard right i haven't heard that said i love that um you made the hard right uh choice and not everyone will agree i mean gosh we cannot live to please people which is really? difficult especially as an enneagram 3 i imagine we'll get back to the conversation after this quick advertisement This episode is brought to you by Cozy Earth. You've probably heard me talk about them before because I love their pajamas and their bedding. Ian and I are obsessed with their sheets because they're temperature regulating and they're made with bamboo viscose. You can shop the world's softest bedding, towels, pajamas, loungewear, and more, and get 35% off using the code ALONGERTABLE. All of their products come with a 10-year warranty, and right now they're running a Valentine's sale. So in addition to the code that I just gave you, ALONGERTABLE, you can get everything for an additional 25% off. So run to Cozy Earth and 
get those pajamas and the bedding. It, you won't regret it. I promise you. It's why it's been on Oprah's favorites and now it's on Manda's favorites. But you left, you end up in the desert back in the Phoenix area with your family. And now let's kind of fast forward. You're back in Chicagoland and you're currently the teaching pastor at Forest City Church in Elgin. Yes. I have to ask, a lot of people would probably not want to be a pastor after what you went through, both personally, professionally, in all the ways. A lot of people would not want to set foot in a church again. What For you, what did, did the impact of what happened at Willow and how it impacted your professional life, did that ever cause a lot of friction in your faith journey? Did it ever make you question, do I really want to be a pastor? Actually, no, it didn't. And and um, I think some people, I think, might be like, "Wait, what?" I I think when 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 you sit with enough people that are really, really good people who have trauma and wounds and pain in their life that they never knew how or were shown a map to deal with properly, it's always going to lead to more pain and transference of brokenness, right? And so I, I, I sit there and I, I don't find myself like looking at, um, oh, well, I can't believe this dad um, just, you know, uh, found himself like using and abusing some kind of alcohol or substance. Like that's, there's a story behind that. And so I think I've always, um, not always, but I think over the last like 15, 20 years, um, had a level of empathy for that. And, and here's the truth, like, Willow didn't, didn't hurt me. Jesus didn't hurt me. Five people did like that, that that's so, so it's like my, my issue has been with five people and that's my work to do my work to work on a process of forgiveness and potential reconciliation if that day ever happens. But that's, that's not Jesus. That's five people who maybe, maybe if I, was in their shoes, maybe I would have done a similar thing, or maybe if I didn't have a map the way that I had a map in certain areas, or if I didn't have mentors like the way that I, I, I just sit there and I just, there's a little bit of grace. I think the cognitive dissonance though that's tricky is I still have these moments of both what I learned and my pain from my experience with Bill that swirls between my ears. And oftentimes on the weekend at a church service. So I, I sit in the front row before I get up to go preach. And I think to myself, that transition could have been better because mm. it's something I learned being in that system and in that culture. And he wasn't wrong. A transition could have been better. And it makes me miss having the opportunity to, to learn from him and makes me miss when I was ignorant to all of the stories. Um, it makes me miss that. That's that's yeah. like I miss my dad. Um, I can't I can't bring him back. Um, and and I wish I could. I really wish I could. And I really wish I all of these last five years were a dream and that I, mm-hmm. a bad dream that I could just wake up and be like, holy, I am not eating that pizza ever again. You know, like <laughs> I I just, but I can't. And so that's sad. And it, and now the question is, what do I do with my sadness? So all of that to say is like, um, Bill didn't own my calling. Yes. Um, Willow didn't own my gifting. Um, it was a conduit. It was a, an opportunity. It was a relationship. Um, and, and for me, it's still responsible for me to try and go, all right, how do I help ensure that this doesn't happen again. And doesn't mean I'm going to be perfect as a leader. And I, I mean, I know I'm not, I, I, but I have to just keep taking steps to say, how do, how do we do this in a way that, um, is closely and more closely aligned to the way of Jesus. Mm. Um, it's beautiful. So, yeah. It's beautiful. You know, you named, I think I forget the official terminology. Maybe it's ambiguous grief. I can't remember, but I hear about it a lot because it's brought up in foster care and it's essentially the grief of someone who's no longer a part of your life, but they're still living. 
they're dead to you in a sense, but they're still alive on the earth. And you either are cut off from them or you choose to end that contact. But that is a tricky, unique, complex kind of grief. And I so relate to even, even missing sometimes the person that I definitely don't want in my life anymore. And they're still alive on this earth, but they, they're dead to me in a sense. And it's just, it's complicated. It's so, so hard. I, I know people listening have probably in their own ways experienced that type of grief in some way or another. Um, you know, you ended the job at Willow. It sounds like not perfectly, but you feel confident in your decision. It's obviously led you now years later back to the Chicagoland, back into being a teaching pastor, which is so beautiful. I'm curious if there's been other times in your life where you've had to end, whether it be a job or whether it be a friendship, a relationship, ending anything really is hard. Um, I'm curious what your advice would be for people who need to end something, but they want to do it well. How do we end well? Yeah, no, I think it's, I think it's really, really good. I think I've, I've done a, um, a really poor job at ending um, in many situations, um, you know, like a relationship, you know, ends and I, I couldn't let go of the relationship, you know? And so, you know, they, they talk about Andy Colbert talks about fight, flight, freeze and fawn. Um, there's like this fawning of like, I can get that person to back and, and codependency almost kicks in. Um, there's there's parts of me that thought I was ending well, but I wasn't clear with boundaries, um, or I was ashamed of the boundaries I was creating, and so then I allowed those boundaries to come down, and um, and so I think that that all of it is a bit of practice and part of being kind to yourself and and talking that through with healthy therapists and healthy mentors. Um, but what I think I've learned is not to wait. Um, uh, another mentor, Rob talks about, you know, it's, <laughs> have you ever been in like one of those lazy rivers and you kind of like, you get into a lazy river and, 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 and Rob was just telling me, he's like, Hey, there's seasons where you, you, you're like in your inner tube and you're floating and you're floating with this group of people. And then you get stuck in a little bit of a current and you go a little bit faster and that group of people still back there and you're moving forward. And then three other inner tubes come for a season. And then, you know, you slow down, they move ahead. You know, part of that is just realizing, gosh, in this transient world that we're living in, there's so much that's like shifting. And I think for so long, I was like, well, I got my four friends and like, I just got to hold on to them. And part of it is sometimes the work I'm doing on my soul and my heart, other people aren't up for that journey yet. And sometimes the the places and the questions I'm asking or the people I'm hanging out with makes other people feel comfortable. And I, I don't want to be someone who forces another person to go past where they're ready because that's not a good friend. That's not a healthy relationship. I want to invite them, but if they're if that's going to create too much cognitive dissonance and too much liminal space, I bless you. But my job is to be clear. Mm -hmm. My job is in a healthy way to state my desires and what I need. And if there's moments of confusion or ambiguity, is to ask for clarity. Hey, can you help me understand? Or can't. And I think in this day and age, with ghosting or canceling, um, or just like I don't know how to handle tension or mm. friction, most people just aren't clear, um, don't know how to name what they need, and just do that very poorly. And that ends up hurting more people than if you were just honest right from the jump. Yeah. I, I love that you said, don't wait. I don't think you're saying people should act on impulse and not discern or think through leaving or ending right. something, but don't wait to bring something up. In a previous conversation this year with Nedra Tawab, she's a therapist I had on who's incredible. She also kind of shared that same sentiment of we, we no longer have a tolerance for conflict or tension and it's hurting us. It's the reason we're ghosting and we're just 
walking away and burning bridges and people are left confused and hurt. It doesn't have to be that way. Um, I've left jobs uh, numerous times. People know my wacky career story that led me to being self-employed. And yet I have good relationships with every job and leader I've left. And I don't say that to like brag or to toot my own horn. I'm just saying it's totally possible. Now, it hasn't always been perfectly smooth. Or there's been awkward conversations, lots of tears. Um, but I think being transparent and honest as early as you can about what you're feeling or where you're at is is definitely going to help. Um, so I love yeah. that you said, don't wait. And and then, and I think that's what you meant by don't yeah. wait. It's not like jump ship right at the yeah, first yeah, sign yeah. of trouble, but you know. Right, right. And, and, and honestly, like, um, and can I flip this onto you? Because man, yeah. you write about this in your book and you tell a story about, um, and sometimes like you've written something and now I'm going to like try and requote it back to you. And you're like, okay, you're like, but you tell a story about a friend. I believe her name was Sarah. Mm -hmm. And there was a moment there where you were like, Hey, it like, this was like your ride or die. That was like, I think a yeah. quote of yours. And, yeah. and you have this moment of like, I feel like something is off. Yeah. I think most people don't, when I say like, you don't wait, when you feel like something is like something, there's some sense of friction in that. Then you reached out and it was like awkward text back and forth. Yeah. And then it was like, let's get on the phone. Yeah. It, it, is that, am I retelling that correctly? You are. Yeah. yeah you're okay. telling it perfectly. So, so I think that's the piece for me is in this day and age where we have hope as a strategy. Like, I just hope it will get better. I just hope mm. it will like figure itself out. I just hope that like, we won't ever talk about it. I just hope. And I think this day and age, like, I just don't have time for that. If I yeah. feel like there's funk, yeah, I, I want to try and address it. And I can't force the other person to, to meet me there, but at least I want to give them the invitation and the opportunity like you did for Sarah. Yeah. Yeah. No, oh, thanks for reading my book and for bringing that up. Yeah. <laughs> it's a great Hard. book. Hard memories, but definitely, you know, and it wasn't a friendship that I, that was perfect by any means, but it, it, we, we ended the, the relationship and it was hard and endings are hard, but they are necessary at times. I'm curious to know, has there ever been a time in your life outside of the Willow experience that we've been talking about that an ending was necessary? Something like ending within your marriage or within your parenting, something ending in terms of relationship with other people, do you have an example of when it was necessary and how you knew? Yes. Um, so I have a family relationship um, and it's so personal on so many levels. Um, and I think, I really think like when we talk about endings, we're not talking enough about family estrangement. Mm. Um, and I think that part of what a homeostasis like the 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 familial setting the the normal of what many of us were brought up in um it's hard as you start to grow and get healthy to then find yourself it going back into those centers um and spaces and there's moments where of like, yes, I have so much empathy and grace, but then there's also places where you're like, that, that crossed the line, that, um, and then when you try to bring that up and there isn't the humility to say, I crossed the line. And, it, and you're sitting here and you're like, this is like the worst PR because you're making it worse. And, and then I feel shame as a pastor. I should be the best at reconciliation. I should be the best. Like, and yet you're like, I got a family and I got a, I got a, and even my childhood trauma in the list is I'm like, still, it's still hard for me not to protect this person. Mm. So, so part of all of this is I had to walk through this like, in Henry Cloud language, a necessary ending. Mm. But here's the crazy piece. Here's the crazy piece is I walked this through in 2016. Mm. And then I read the story of David and Goliath. 
And I think we always celebrate the fact that David fought Goliath. I'm like, oh my goodness, oh my goodness, so much amazing story. Five stones, he fought the giant. Everyone else was like watching. But you know what? David doesn't fight the fight Goliath if when nobody's watching, he doesn't fight the bear and the lion at night that was coming after the sheep. If he would have been like, oh man, like that's a lion. I don't want to touch that. Like, I don't think he 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 doesn't get prepared to fight Goliath. So the weirdest, the weirdest piece was this ending that happened within my family and my family system actually prepared me for the harder right. But I'll tell you that 2016, 2017 family ending. I mean, it, 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 it was, it was literally the hardest thing I'd ever done up until that point. And I, it was so hard for me to recognize that, oh my goodness, that is actually preparing me for the next most difficult thing. And I say that for many of you who are like, I don't know how to end this relationship. And sometimes we have to Jedi mind trick ourselves. And, and because it's so hard in this moment, I'm not such a bad person. I'm a bad friend. I should be able to fight through this. I should be able to put up with this. I should, but I'm just telling you, it might not be about this relationship. It might be about something else that you just need to build this level of muscle memory to actually prepare yourself for a harder right or a harder truth or a harder moment that you're going to need to own in the seasons or years or decades to come. And again, back to your book, like I read that and I just, the day that you came forward and confessed, Mm. like if you couldn't have been vulnerable in that moment. And your podcast is all about authenticity and vulnerability. The questions you ask, the stuff. But if you couldn't have done that, you would never be able to sit and hold space with other people's vulnerability. And and, And I think there's something that I almost have to be reminded of that is, oh, the end is the end, but the end is the beginning. Mm-hmm. And and can you welcome that surprise and beginning, even though it's different from what you ever thought it would be? Yes. Yes. So true. So true. I so agree. Yeah. It's like, I, I like that you framed that the way you did because endings suck. We won't deny it, but nope. every ending is a new beginning in some way. And it's inevitable. It's it's an unavoidable a part a part of our lives that, yeah, no no one enjoys it. I'm in Enneagram eight, so I don't mind conflict, but it's still uncomfortable. Like it's still not my favorite thing. Um, but it is unavoidable. At least if we're truly living, if we're truly evolving, if we're truly moving forward. Um, and and I like that you even named as a pastor the trickiness of you know I'm supposed to be the the king of reconciliation and of grace. And how do you do this? You know, it's like you're not trying to be ruthless and not have grace for people, but um, sometimes an ending is even just a temporary time of a boundary where it's like the only way, the best way, and the only way I can love you is you know, if there's not contact between us for, for a time and that's hard, but, um, yeah, I love your vulnerability and sharing that. So kind of shifting gears a little bit, I see that you are also making the table longer for people through your podcast craft and character, which I love the name, obviously talked about character integrity already. And I love that you actually said bill or willow didn't own your calling, which is why you've continued to live into that since you've you know, ended there and continued on as a pastor. But who has made the table longer for you, Steve? Who has invested in you and how has it helped lead you to who you are and where you are today? Yeah. So, man, there's a there's a handful of people. You know, if, if, if you've ever read Rob Lowe, the actor, he, he has a, opens his uh, biography by talking about, you know, there's a difference between Academy Award winners and straight to DVD. And he's like, it's all about the casting. That's what Alfred Hitchcock said. 90% of a great movie is all on its casting. And and who are the the cast around you? And, you know, and um, I was really, really fortunate. You know, I, I, I had Hal, who I told you about, about the integrity question. Um, I lived in Rob Bell's basement for almost a year. And he um, has been someone who was really, really influential in my story. Um, I had an, a couple of incredible uh, professors, um, both women and men, who just... Um, yeah, even during the most difficult time, almost 20 years after I graduated, we're still like checking in and flew out to be with me in the midst of the Willow stuff. So um, 
I, I just have felt so fortunate for, um, the women and men that God has put around me. And I mean, honestly, like I, I often will call people all the time and be like, Hey, can I grab coffee? Can I learn? And like, I, I never know if someone might move from just a, someone I respect to a mentor, but I always believe that if you have a healthy therapist, you have a good gym, you have a healthy spiritual director, you have a couple really great mentors, um, and a good date night, if you're married, um, your, your life is going to be pretty set up well. And I just, I, I, that's been really, really important that I want to fight for is having those mentors in my life. Yeah. It's so good. And I always remind people too, you you may not have access to your ideal mentor, but you have access to them through podcasts and books and things that they're putting out there. And don't discount that. Like that can be mentorship too. But equally as important as if you can get a mentor face to face that you're checking in with, that you're sitting, uh, looking each other in the eyes, talking about the really wonky, hard, vulnerable stuff with. So that's so good. Um uh, there's so many more things I want to talk to you about, but I think we're going to wrap up by talking briefly about the book that you released two years ago called The Thing Beneath the Thing, which I love that title, by the way, and love the book cover, even just all of it. And I think there's actually a lot of similarities between it and my book, Soul Care to Save Your Life. But in all transparency, I haven't read it yet. I've just heard about it, read the description, and I ordered it. So I'm waiting on it to arrive. Um, but I am curious, why did you write the thing beneath the thing? Yeah. Well, first off, I they're they're definitely in the same family. I read yours and I was like, oh my goodness, they're like cousins. It's you, it, yeah. your book is fantastic. <laughs> um, the question for me was on Romans seven fifteen when Paul says, "I do not understand what I do. The good I want to do, I just don't do. But the thing I hate, I do." And in how our 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 culture has like redemptively evolved. Um, I don't think someone can just get up and go, I didn't understand what I do. It's like, you can, you can't say that anymore to our spouses, or you can't go on Twitter and be like, Hey, I don't understand what I did. You know, the good I want to do, I just didn't do the thing I hate. I did. People are like, no, you got to do more work. So for me, it was just trying to help myself understand more why I do what I do and to help other people understand, which is the invitation to get after the thing beneath the thing. Mm, so good. Yeah. We're going to link that in the show notes. I can't wait to read it. Maybe I'll do another book club. I did one. Gosh, it had to be like a year or two ago. I think it was honestly like two years ago. Yeah. Because Shia wasn't even born. I did a book club where I chose The Emotionally Healthy Leader by Pete Scazzaro. It's Great one of book. my favorite books. And I wanted to reread it and invite people to read it with me. I think The Thing Beneath the Thing would be a great one to invite people into. So stay tuned if you're listening and you want to read it with me and be part of a book club. Can't wait to share the details on that. I am totally announcing this on a whim, but I've decided I'm doing it. So we're, that's an impulsive thing, but it's a good one. So we'll stick to that. Steve, thank you so much for being at a longer table today and really just sharing your story and sharing so vulnerably and processing with me about what it means to end well. 